Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Loudon Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 119. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 119 you're listening to. And my guest today is Mr. Tucker Martin, who's worked with the Decemberists, REM, My Morning Jacket, Nico Case, Spoon, Bill Frizzell, and his wife, Laura Veers. So uh, Tucker's coming up here shortly. We're going to Skype in with him from his studio flora in portland oregon shortly tucker martin coming up sometimes when i'm doing the show i always feel like after i've recorded it i always think oh i forgot to tell everybody that you know the show is available on all these different platforms and i feel like that band you sometimes see that fails to tell the audience that the cds are for sale from the stage and people are always you know bugging them where can we buy your cd so i'm not going to be that uh, that band or that guy i gotta tell you longtime listeners know this New listeners, if you don't know, you can get Working Class Audio at iTunes, iHeartRadio. If you prefer YouTube, we're there as well. The pictures aren't moving, but, you know, the sound is still there. Uh, Of course, Google, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. So, uh, yeah, head on over to one of those and check it out. And if all else fails, go to workingclassaudio.com where you can uh, read a little more detailed information on our guests uh, you can get some uh, working class audio bonus content, and uh, you can see some recommendations that we have. Uh, we also have some uh, studio tours, self-guided tours from the studio owners with their cell phones. And uh, we're going to be putting some more of those up. I have a batch that I need to get up from numerous past guests that uh, have been bugging me saying, I sent you the the tour. Are you going to put it up? And I will, promise. So yeah, workingclassaudio.com. Make sure and check that out. You can subscribe to the Working Class Audio podcast there on the website. I don't really send emails all that often. And those of you who have signed up probably think, have I missed something? You haven't missed anything. I just don't send emails all that often. We get inundated with emails. And I get inundated with emails from all of my friends who do work in various capacities. And they're always emailing me. So I always feel inundated. And I don't want you to feel that way. I will email when there's something real important going on, something that I think I need your attention for. So uh, yeah, sign up, be a part of the deal. So uh, last time, last week, we checked in with uh, our friend Matt Ross Spang, and we're going to continue in that tradition. And we are going to check in today by phone with Gabriel Shepard, who, if you recall, Gabriel Shepard was on WCA number 11 which just as a reminder, if you're always, if you're looking for a quick way to get to the past episodes, if you go to workingclassaudio.com, on the right-hand side, on the very bottom, you'll see it says recent posts, and it's just a straight list of all the podcasts uh, going back uh, all the way to number one. So uh, yeah, it's a great way to jump around and without a lot of hassle and a lot of, you know, searching through the website. Obviously, you can always Google your favorite person that you're looking for, but uh, that's a, that's a great way to do it. So, uh, so let's do that. Let's actually, uh, let's call in on Skype. I'm going to call uh, Gabriel's phone. Uh, I just texted him and uh, he is ready to take our call. So let's do that right now. Gabe Shepard. Present. Matt Boudreaux here. How are you, man? I'm good. What are you doing? What are you working on? I am, uh, I've been pretty busy. I'm on staff now at 25th street and we are booked a lot <laughs> with the uh, with trilogy closing and uh, and Jingle Town closing, so we've been pretty busy. I'm working on. A, I just finished a residence record, and we're doing a live show uh, at the end of the month at the Exploratorium at the uh, I forget what the name of that uh, venue is, but it's a, they have a constellation, a Meyer constellation system, which has 99 speakers. So I've been working on that. I had a uh, session with Rafael Sadiq for a Rick Ross track, which was pretty cool. But yeah, just staying real busy. Wow. Oh, the Resonance. What a what a classic cult type band. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's very uh very arty. Amazing. Yeah. And you're over now your staff over at twenty fifth street in Oakland. That's a nice, reliable gig. Yeah. It's it's uh it's pretty amazing to get to hang out there. 
on a regular basis and interact with all the uh, all the people that come through there. I've had some uh, some really interesting and fun stuff come through. So that's what you've been working on lately. And uh, how's the staff position work out with the family and and your work life balance? A lot of the business that comes through, a lot of it's last minute. It doesn't always work with our with the scheduling because we're, we're generally pretty busy. But um, because we are busy, we have to you know, end up having to book things in the evenings or early morning just to kind of fit it in to get get what people will need done. Uh, so, it, you know, I'm, I'm often gone in the evenings just because that's when there's time available for the, for the clients. Got it. So, yeah, you know, it's, you know, actually I've had the last couple of days have been pretty light. So I've just been kind of hanging out at home, but um, I'm back at it starting tomorrow. So, <laughs> And just as a parting thought before I let you go, any um, anything new technique-wise or gear-wise or idea-wise in recording that's been on your mind that uh, is been uh, motivating you as of late? Yeah, we've been really uh, experimenting with different microphones and trying to find some you know more interesting uh, tones, especially with the drums. We pair of those uh, Sony C37s the two mics mm-hmm. and uh, experimenting with those on overheads or like a, a top side deal on drums um, and uh, getting it with the, you know, some compression, some nice compression uh, tracking with it, with the compression. And uh, uh, actually, I think I'm going to do that on Friday uh, again, just to see how, how it sounds. But it's, it's a, it's a pretty neat drum sound. <laughs> um uh, it makes it sound old and, and uh, I don't know, dramatic. Yeah. Uh, you're using that on drums. Is that the only thing you're using or is that a complement to existing things? Uh, that would complement other, you know, more uh, spot mics. You know, maybe definitely have something on the, on the kick and the snare. Um, and then depending on, you know, depending on the track, you might add a, a hi-hat mic or... Um, uh, some other room mics, maybe, uh, and you know, like, and, and again, depending on the on the track, maybe some tom mics. Um, okay. I'm kind of digging the, uh, you know, minimal miking. Um, it's not always easy to find a band that's willing to do that with you, but <laughs> so sometimes you have to put extra mics on just to, for safety's sake. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that's cool, man. Well, I just uh, wanted to check in with you, say hello, and find out what you're working on, find out what's uh, new for you. So, uh, hope you're doing well, man. Good to talk to you. Yeah, good to talk to you too, man. Thanks for thanks for calling. Uh, I'll see you when I see you next. Great. All right, man. Later. All right, bye. All right. Great to talk to Gabriel Shepard again and check in to see what he's up to. Uh, once again, just a reminder, if you want to check out Gabriel's original episode, that is WCA number 11. And uh, just you can either Google that or, as I said earlier, you can go to the list that's at the bottom right of the Working Class Audio website. So there it is. All right. Well, let's uh, dive into our main interview today with Mr. Tucker Martin here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You're up in Portland. Yeah. Portland, Oregon, I should clarify, not Portland, Maine. And uh, but you were born in Nashville. Yep. And, grew up in Nashville. And you grew up with a, a father who was a songwriter. That's right. Yeah, he um, he was one of a handful of folks that was fortunate enough to make a living, right, thinking of songs and, and getting other people to sing them. Interesting. I'm to understand you used to go to uh, the studio with him. Yeah, for demos, he's not a like a, a musician per se. He, he does play the, he he strums the guitar to write his songs, but it, it wasn't like he was in the studio cutting tracks or, or albums per se. But um, when he was having his demos done, you know, he'd be there to produce them. And sometimes he would sing on them. But uh, occasionally I'd, I'd tag along either because there was no one else to watch me or, you know, eventually because I became curious and, and he was happy to, to have me sit in the corner and, and watch it go down. And at what around what age was that for you? Do you remember? Oh, you know, I would say... I would say sometime around 10 where I, where it started to be something that I wanted to do mm-hmm. if he, if, you know, if, if he asked me instead of just being dragged along with dad, wherever he had to go. Mm-hmm. And then 
as far as instruments are concerned, you played uh, drums? Yeah. Okay. Drums around, I think probably around 11 or 12, I, I started drums. Mm -hmm. And I do know that uh, you didn't go to college, that you, out of high school, I don't know why you chose this, but you went to Boulder, Colorado. Yeah. My, my older brother was in school there and he played bass and I played drums and we, we shared a lot of musical tastes and, and kind of shared the, the hope and dreams of that many young folk of starting a band and, and taking over the world and, and all that stuff. So the morning after my high school graduation, I, I hopped in my, my 66 Ford Falcon Futura and uh, headed to Boulder and spent a couple years there, basically two years of us putting up flyers, trying to find a third person that, you know, to, to complete our outfit and never finding the right person. But man, I wish we had been filming a documentary of all the, th all the people that we tried out. I mean, we had the, we had the, you know, the dude that showed up with his Marshall stacks and, and the huge hair and his, and his flying V. And we had the socially awkward poet guy that didn't play an instrument and didn't have any sense of melody, but would just freestyle poetry over it. You know, everything in between. We, we were open. We just wanted some, something unique and someone that complimented what we do. But anyway, that's, that's a bit of a diversion. But that, that was an important chapter in, you know, the musical path. <laughs> the world of music brings quite a lot of comedy relief. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's helpful if you're able to, to, to find the comedy in it because it's, it's certainly right in front of us most of the time. Um, I watched a great TED Talk with you and your wife, uh, Laura, uh, and that's where I got a lot of my information. And one of the great things about this TED Talk that you all do is you talk about going to this, you're working at this radio station in Colorado. And yep. you, your combination of finding very rhythmical sounding records combined with uh, very harmonic sounding records, each lacking in the other, and combining them. And one of those combinations that you demonstrated was Brian Eno together with some Moroccan drummers. And you played a sample in that video. And it was, it was pretty striking. I got to say when I, when I heard it, oh, good. I, I, I thought it was brilliant. And you start to piece together how you eventually arrived at being a recording professional. And that, but that particular episode uh, in your life, I thought was really fascinating. A lot of us, you know, we discover four tracks, we uh, play with cassette recorders. This is the first time I've heard anybody talk about combining two elements like that out of sheer discovery and, and desire to create something from two different sources. Yeah, it, it just, it was a natural thing for me being there. You know, I had the graveyard shift and sitting in this room with there's two turntables and, <laughs> and a, microphone. a microphone. Yep. <laughs> and a, a mixing board right there in the middle. And, um, you know, hardly anyone's listening, a small town, a little public station in the middle of the night. And I, yeah, I was just really into experimental music and minimal music and field recordings. And I mean, as well as pop music and the Beatles and all, you know, all that stuff. But there, there would be these moments at first when I was fading one thing out to start the next piece. And sometimes I was like, Hey, wait a minute. I don't want, I don't want the combination to end. I want them to keep going together. So I started just looking for more serendipitous combinations like that. And that, that became just sort of a focal point of, of those radio hours for me. And, you know, as a drummer who has sort of a compositional mind of sorts. I think I've always kind of had opinions about, you know, structures, uh, arrangement and stuff, even though I'm not um, particularly adept at, at melodic instruments. I think that started opening doors to ways to, to compose music and sound that wasn't necessarily about, you know, being a great guitar player or keyboard player, for example. I have to ask because I... I too am a long-term drummer and didn't do very well in music theory in high school. Uh, didn't take any music theory classes once I took some college courses. And I kind of identify with those who have a rhythmic foundation, but a sense of melody, a sense of pitch, but the, lack that general like full-on understanding of music theory and 
I, I, yeah. So my question would be, do you identify also with uh, records made by people like us? Like, well, although I would say I would cite Stuart Copeland, for example, uh, like the Rhythmatist album. But I think Stuart Copeland actually probably knows a little more about music theory than the two of us. Yeah, I, I would venture to guess that's true. But absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, from from early on, once I was even aware, you know, once once those ways of making music be, were something I was aware of, I started seeking out uh, other types of, of recordings and um, and just just being inspired by different ways of of making music and of listening to music. You know, it it opened my ears as a music appreciator and um, also helped me start to identify record production and engineering and, and just make a little bit more sense of what I was hearing on some records. And, you know, I loved the those early Brian Eno ambient things and with Daniel Lenoir and Harold Budd and those guys. And then I'd start seeing some of their names on on these big pop or rock and roll records and started connecting some of the ambience that I was hearing on, you know, whatever, uh, they, on Joshua Tree, for example, by U2 with some of these really just desolate, spaced out records like, um, you know, Apollo, uh, Brian Eno and Daniel Lenoir did, for example. I, I was really inspired by that. Like, oh, these, these worlds can be combined. Because for a while I thought, well, if I'm into this kind of ambient, spaced out experimental stuff, uh, then I'm the weird dude that's into that, 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 you know, these songwriter guys don't relate to or, or whatever. And, um, I was relieved when I realized, no, all these worlds can converge and be better off for it. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, and for the listener, maybe for the younger listeners who aren't as familiar with this, if you, uh, go back and listen to some U, U2 records like Joshua Tree, maybe a couple records after that, and then go back and listen to some Brian Eno and Daniel Lanois records, you can directly hear the influence of those two guys on those U2 records. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that some discoveries that, say, Eno and Lanois made, making those those ambient records, you know, exploring different guitar textures and stuff, they they brought those things directly into to the U2 field. And, you know, it's just wild to to think that those those experiments of these records that were were pretty pretty obscure i mean they're they're legendary now um for what they stood for at the time and and doors that they've opened up but i don't think they were selling a lot of those those records you know put put basically a good solid beat on it and and um a, a great singer and and you know great melodies you know, I want to mention this too to the listeners is that one of the things that you demonstrate in this in this TED talk is uh, mapping out Beatles songs, literally like right. what's going on in the left, the center, the right, mapping out the instrumentation when things come in. That was fascinating as well. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like probably a lot of a lot of us did it. I don't know if you ever did that or, um, but you know, at some point. I just thought, well, let, let me, let, let's write this down. You know, I was reading about the making of those records and um, that they were doing it on four tracks was, in most cases was, was kind of mind-blowing. And um, so I just wanted to write it down and try to see if there were patterns, you know, was the bass always panned with the drums or always away from the drums and what came in where. It was, you know, su such a, a study in in production, but also songwriting and um you know, engineering and, um, you know, thinking about why, why did they make that guitar just sound so trebly, like it's stabbing your ear and this other one comes in and it's all muffled. And you, you just eventually start to realize how those things, how those, why those choices were made and how those things complement each other. So yeah, that's a, that's a huge education. I mean, I don't know if I ever start doing more teaching, I'd, I would probably put that in the first in the amongst the first lessons is put on revolver and, and the headphones and and write you know make a column for left center and right and uh, make make a chart. <laughs> yeah, that's a good listening exercise. Carrying on with that that theme of of music discovery before you actually really dug hard into the world of recording, uh, you kind of came across music concrete, um, uh -huh. as well as Jamaican dub music um, from King Tubby and Lee Scratch Perry. And 
I think now, you know, with all of these things we're talking about, what was the breaking point that made you get into recording itself? Well, you know, all the while I was, I mean, I, my brother had a cassette four track in high school and we would mess around with it. So I started to become aware that that existed. And then basically it was just a slow path of playing with friends, four tracks and eventually getting my own quarter inch TX. I think it's the 30. 340 something like that yeah yeah um and and just messing around and you know that that led to having my friend over who's just learning the guitar and wrote a song and i'd say yeah let's come play your song and i'll play some drums and then we'll have a couple tracks left and let's hey i'm gonna bang on this can and you know whatever like i read about this thing where you can record it fast and then play it back at regular speed and it sounds all slowed down and chunky or what you know whatever like the all the basic stuff but that was just mind-blowing to me at the time. And I still try to come here every day and have my mind blown by that stuff and not take it for granted. What led you to Portland? What caused you to leave Boulder? Well, from Boulder, I went to Seattle. I was in Seattle oh. for 15 years. So, um, you know, I was restless. I was I was 20 in, in Boulder, and I could just see that it wasn't, you know, it was great. I, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't change a thing about those couple of years, but... I could see it wasn't ultimately going to kind of lead to the sort of musical growth anymore that I was seeking. And um, it felt really limited in its range of, of folks that, that I could play with. And I just knew there was such a vast world of ideas out there and it was starting to feel too small, which was the same reason I left Nashville. I mean, Nashville's a great music town, but uh, in, in 1990, when I graduated from high school, it, it just felt too, too narrow in its focus. There was there were plenty of things going on in there that, that I had a lot of respect for, but it wasn't broad enough for, for me at the time. And plus, there's just that natural instinct many of us have to, to just leave w where we grew up and, and see another part of the, the country. But so I went to Seattle at the time. The short version is I, I saved up enough money and drove around the country in my pickup truck and slept in the back of my truck and just wanted to see America, you know, reading Jack Kerouac and all that stuff and um, just hitting every town or city that I'd heard about and or that I had a friend in maybe that I could visit or stay with. And Seattle was a stop along the way and it just grabbed me. It was summertime. It was gorgeous. That was 1992 at that point. So um, things were starting to, to happen there on the, the kind of national awareness. But, you know, Bill Frizzell had just moved there and, and Wayne Horvitz and um, there were people like that that were more in the the jazz kind of adventurous instrumental music realm um which was something that interested me and obviously the rock they were great rock bands and 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 whatnot and it and i got the sense that these people were playing together and there just felt like a sense of community so i thought here's where i'll start the next chapter and um so after 15 years in seattle i came down to portland to work on a decemberist record that was about 10 or 11 years ago. And again, it was summertime and it was gorgeous here. And Seattle was starting to change rapidly with all the money and the, the dot-com stuff. And um, it was it was getting more expensive. And a lot of the things I loved about it, a lot of the character of Seattle, I felt like was I, I, was, I wasn't seeing it anymore. And, and Portland kind of felt like the, the innocent little sibling. So I was just ready for a change and, and uh, took a chance and came came here and it's been great. Your time in, in Seattle, if you could kind of give me the trajectory of what happened in Seattle from a recording standpoint, from a career building standpoint. Yeah. So I got a job at a bar or tavern, waiting tables, and the owners were artists and real art focused folks. You know, they had monthly art shows and art openings every month for those, those artists. And it was a lot of artists hung out there and musicians hung out there. And it actually was across the street from the kind of big premier studio in Seattle at the time called Bad Animals. And so people that were recording there, Soundgarden and REM and folks like that would come in sometimes, which was which was cool. But my coworkers were musicians and artists too. And uh, we were all just kind of people trying to find our way as, as artists. And a couple of them asked me to record their bands. And, you know, I... I recorded their bands because I, I was I'd record anybody. I just wanted to do it and and learn more and, and get some experience. So 
really it it was just it was a slow progression of of recording bands and making some not particularly good recordings, but making discoveries along the way about things that work and things didn't work, and people would hear that and it would someone else would want me to do it and I, I was doing it for you know for free and then for for five bucks an hour or whatever for the longest time i I didn't want anyone to have a reason not to have me record them because it it wasn't a job a career choice it was it was a a passion you know and something i i wanted to know more about and get good at and um you know eventually i i was kind of a, acquired a stock of some knowledge and experience and was getting just a few more people asking me to do it than i had time so you know i thought well if i charge a little bit more maybe i can quit my job and i'll have more time etc cetera, etc cetera. and it's just been kind of a slow and steady growth since there, since, since that time. In those days of, of Seattle, you know, recording for free, recording for low dollar amounts, were you, did you have a studio or were you booking time at other studios? I guess I kind of skipped that detail, but I was, I was working six days a week and saving up. And I bought like at the time, Mackie had just announced their first like 24 by eight console, which you know, for people much younger than me, I'm 45, but you, you just have no idea. There, there was no such thing. Like you could not have a real multi-track, like 24 channel console, you know, without spending, I, I don't remember the exact figures, but it, it was just so out of reach unless you had a lot of money. Um, but I was able to save up. I don't remember exactly what it, what it costs, but you know, thousand dollars or yeah, something. Yeah, my recollection of those was like three grand, four grand maybe. Yeah, that's probably right at the time. Four grand if you want the meter bridge. Oh, and I wanted the meter <laughs> bridge, You got to have the meter bridge. Because every time I open Mix Magazine, they have meter bridges in the studios. Um, so I saved up for that and then I saved up and bought a four, you know, Sennheiser 421. And then I saved up and bought a um, just one piece at a time, you know, a Lisa's compressor. What does this compressor do? Just one thing at a time. And, and a lot of folks I was recording, you know, I would just, I'd just do it with one or two mics because that's what I had. And I didn't, I wasn't feeling sorry for myself. I was psyched. I had a 421, man, and a Mackie. And eventually a, a Otari half-inch eight-track, the MX5050, I believe. And I thought I was, I thought I was at the top of the mountain when I got that thing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm like, there's, you can make anything with this. And a quadroverb. Oh, so, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, I'm, you know, I'm really grateful for, for all those experiences. I feel like with the, now with the advent of the, you know, the modern technology, I, it, it just gave me a kind of a solid foundation of, of the concepts now that we have basically any option available at any time, which is great, but it can be paralyzing. And, um, you know, to have too many options, which is a whole other subject. Don't get me going on that. Well, but, and I just um, want to touch on that for a second because you went to, uh, you took some classes and I, and I didn't quite get the name. It was, am I saying it correctly? The Neuropa Institute? Correct. Yeah. In Boulder. And you, you took a class where you were given uh, an assignment and you had to create something out of a paper clip, a rubber band, a rock and a tape machine. Yeah. You can manipulate the tape any way you wanted. At the end of the day, the creation had to come out of what you could make with those items. And I thought that was, that's an incredible exercise in limitations. Yeah, absolutely. And it just, you know, it makes you stare at the tape machine for a while and just, let's, well, let's think about this. I can make it go faster. I can make it go slower. I can make it go backwards. I can make it go forwards. I can create loops with the tape. You know, I could, I could put a mic stand four feet out in the room and, and um, kind of loop the tape around it and make a, you know, make a six foot piece of tape and, and start creating loops that way. You could edit, you could chop the tape up. So you could, you, you could have, you, you know, chop it into a hundred pieces and put it back together randomly and half the pieces will be backwards or whatever. You know, it was just, um, just learning all the, all the fundamentals of the medium, just like I guess you would learn, uh, you know, music theory, or whatnot for, you know, for writing songs, uh, just felt like I was drawn to, to the studio and all the ways sound could be captured and manipulated and, and rearranged. Tucker Martin here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to take a sponsor break. 
from our conversation with Tucker with Audio-Technica for a second. Just want to remind you, there is a series of videos that Audio-Technica does on the Audio-Technica YouTube channel, and they're done by uh, Charlie Waymeyer, and Charlie goes over basic techniques for miking all kinds of instruments, uh, specifically drums. Uh, there's a whole playlist of drum miking techniques, including miking kicks and snares and toms and hi-hats and rides and overheads and room mics and all that. Uh, and I encourage you to check it out, especially if you are a student uh, or possibly new to recording. If recording's old hat to you and you're just killing some time and you want a fresh perspective or maybe just a reminder about what other people tend to do, this is cool. This is uh, interesting to check out. And, you know, sometimes looking at basic information again that you wrote off long ago can be really informative. So be sure and check it out at the Audio-Technica YouTube channel. And let's get back into our conversation here with Tucker Martin here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. You left Seattle, you went to Portland to make a Decemberist record. And what happened in terms of falling in love with Portland? You mean, why did I love the city? Not so much why you loved it. What made you just snap and go, oh, I got to move here? I think it was one of those just subtle things that was building where Seattle was just like... You know, I could just feel it was changing so fast. Every time I went to a neighborhood I loved, I, I was kind of looking around going, wait, this isn't what I remember. This isn't what brought me here. You know, that was largely subconscious, but because I didn't want to think about moving away, I had a whole community there and a studio I'd built in my basement. And But sometimes I guess just going to a new place and kind of falling for that place and falling right into a community of folks there and for me, it really helped that it felt like, well, it's just down the road. It's not like I would be ditching Seattle and maybe never seeing these people again or hardly ever. I thought it's just down the road. It's the next city down. I mean, I could, you know, people can come to me and get back home in the same day and vice versa if if needed. And so that that kind of eased the the decision. It just felt like time for a change. You know, sometimes you gotta you gotta shake it up. I'm curious how how uh, your studio came together that you currently run in Portland, Flora. Yeah. Flora was initially the street I lived on in Seattle when I had my first basement studio. So that's where the name began. I always, I've realized that the studios that were popping up on a lot of records I was admiring at, at that moment um, were named after uh, the street they were on because I was I was really into Daniel Lanois and, and he and his brother had started Grant Avenue Studios in Hamilton, Canada, I believe. And uh, then, of course, there's Abbey Road. And, and I, I've always loved the, the idea of um, that I feel like geography has some kind of influence on the sound, you know, like bands from a certain region have a certain sound and music from different parts of the world all has, has a, di a different sound. And um, so that was also sort of a, a way of, of recognizing that, you know, that, that feeling that I had. But, um, so my basement studios just kept, kept growing, you know, and I moved to a few different basements over the, over the years and my equipment was, was growing. And my first like console after the Mackie was a Neotech series three C, which was great. And then it just became too much of a maintenance bear. And, and then I got a Neotech elite because that was sort of like a, a newer-ish one. And then finally had the opportunity to buy this API legacy console from my friend Stuart Hallerman, who runs a vast recording in Seattle. Mm -hmm. He was upgrading to a larger API console. And, you know, I had mixed a lot of records on this. This, this was really the first kind of super high-end console that I had ever been able to mix on. And I just fell for it from the first day and just felt, you know, I'd convinced myself there was a little bit of magic in it or something. Every time I mixed there, things turned out good. And Stuart was looking to move it pretty quickly because he had to make room for the new one that was coming in. And, you know, he gave me a really a super reasonable deal and, and kind of put up with me while I got the funding together and, and all that. And uh, so basically that went into my basement in Portland. And then we had a baby and I just was like, you know what, the studio in the basement thing and having kids is not going to, it's not working out so great. And it's high time. I just got a space and I have everything I need except the space. I mean, I've got the console. I have all the pre's. I have, you know, all the mics. I have the headphones. I, you know, had everything but, but the space and, and, and it's, it's just been great to, 
to get it away from the home and it makes it easier to just, this is all I do when I'm here and when I'm home, I'm just home. Do you uh, rent your space or did you buy a building? I rent it. I yeah. wish, I wish I could have bought it, but you know, the build out alone was, was so outrageous to do that, that the idea of being able to afford a, a building and a build out was, was way out of reach. So yeah, I'm renting. I, I built a really nice studio inside somebody else's space. <laughs> do you ever, um, uh, do you ever feel you threatened know. that that could, that that's going to come to an end or? Sure. Yeah. Naturally. I, I do worry about that. I mean, you know, my landlord is a perfectly good guy, but he's a developer. Like what he cares about is he buys stuff to make money and makes his decisions based on that. He's not out to make the world a better place for record making per se. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I've got another four years on this lease and, and that'll, that'll be 10, 10 years when that's up. And I hope, I hope to be here longer, but if, if that's it, at least, you know, like that's the minimum I could feel okay about if it, if I had gotten booted out after the first five year lease, yeah, that would be depressing. Let's go back a little bit. I want to talk a little a bit about your family situation. We discuss work-life balance and how to integrate recording and families and make that work successfully. But you, I believe, are the first person that I've had on whose significant other is also in the music industry. Uh, you're married to Laura Veers, who's uh, a singer-songwriter, and who you two started making records together as friends and eventually became husband and wife. Yeah. You now have, uh, how many children do you have? Two. Two? Yeah. Uh, so your relationship, uh, as far as, you know, I w I'm not going to say it's crazy unique. It's not like, you know, people from the same industry don't uh, pair up, but I mean... How does that work for you all in terms of the work-life balance? You obviously have a, a very understanding uh, partner in this. Sure, yeah, but it's, I'll be honest, it's a lot of work. It's, a, it's, a, it's hard. It's hard for both of us, as I think just raising kids is for any couple. There's so much to negotiate every day. Um, but yeah, you know, it's just, it's, there's a lot of give and take and just a lot of communication necessary. And, and I've learned to, by necessity, to put some boundaries on my working schedule that I never did before, never really even thought to do before, never even knew you could before. Um, I think I, I used to even fear that if I put any kind of constrictions on the, the time frame, you know, the length of a day or taking weekends off or whatever, whatever it might be, um, that no one would call me and I would just stop working and not get to make records, which, you know, I, I need to do because I make a living at it, but I, I, I do it you know, I do it also because I have to do it. I mean, something feels wrong when I don't get to make a record for a while if I'm away from the studio for too long. So yeah, it's just, it's just a lot of work. You know, she toured a lot last summer and that meant I had to really pull back on my work commitments and be dad most of the time, but you know, I got lined up some childcare so I could come in and, um, I just scheduled projects that could fit within kind of smaller windows of time and that were cool with, with, you know, oh, there might be a day that I, I can't do it on short notice or something. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that if a band's coming in from Scotland or whatever, you know, that's going to be a time where, where you got to just get cracking and the days are going to be a little longer and, and you, you know, the, you don't always get the luxury of, of weekends off or whatever, but, but I try to have my default be a kind of a manageable, you know, nine hour day and, and taking weekends off whenever possible, because if you don't at least start with that as a default, I mean, you know, making records, if you're just, if you just do it until it tells you it's done, well, you're just, you'll be doing it nonstop. It never ends. It always needs a little more time. There's always one more idea. So, you know, in, in a way it's been, it's been a revelation because I can come in here for nine hours, nine really focused hours. And everyone knows that we're, we're here for nine hours and people are just focused and they, we get to it and we get it, you know, we get stuff done. And then when we come back the next day, we're fresh and we're psyched to be in here. And then the next day, same again, instead of that thing where, you know, you, you start getting a bunch of days in to it and you're doing these really long days and everyone's starting to feel a little more fried and a little less focused, a little less productive, a little, maybe a little grumpier. 
everyone's starting to second guess things more because they're losing perspective because it's all, you know, your whole life is just in the bubble of the record. I mean, I get that too. And I've done it a million times and, and I'll do it again, you know, when absolutely necessary. But, um, I've learned that, that there's a lot to be said for, for a balance. Yeah. How old are your children? They're just about to turn four and seven. Mine are 11 and eight. And I, I can tell you that it gets easier as they get older, even to that stage. I'm sure you're already experiencing a little bit. Of I that. like hearing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, so much better, easier now than it was two, three years ago for sure. Laura was touring with, if I'm correct, uh, Katie Lang and Nico Case. Yeah, last yeah. summer. And that's uh, the that's a pretty that... I remember seeing the press releases for that and thought, "Oh, that's pretty significant." So, when she's gone, uh do you just arrange for childcare when you got to get to the studio or or they're at preschool? Or... Yeah. Well, it was the summer, so they were uh, for our 6-year-old, we had camps every week. But, you know, most of those are out at 2 or 3. And then our our 3-year-old, we just kind of upped his his preschool days to four or five, which is he's normally doing three. And certain weeks I was able to kind of string together somebody that could, you know, pick up our son from school and just hold down the fort till I could get home at six or something. Um, And like I said, I just made sure whatever I was doing, whether it was a personal project, I mean, that's a great time to just do something that's more of a personal project. You know, that's hard to schedule otherwise, Mm -hmm. working on my own stuff or things with friends that aren't like, you know, income generators per se, but things that you want to do anyway, or, um, working with someone in town who's like, you know, Hey, I'm flexible. I can, you know, I can work on short notice. I can work, I can come in for three hours. I can come in for eight hours. I can come in for an hour. Like, just let me know what works. You know, there's often somebody like that that wants to do something. And so it just takes some creative scheduling and and a lot of communication, but it's hard, man. I could, if I had a little extra time, I'd, I'd start my own podcast and just talk to studio people about balancing family life and the studio, you know, cause it's, it's so challenging. I, I'm curious. I mean, do you, do you have, I know that this is an interview with me, but <laughs> on the subject, I mean, do, have, have you found anything? Did you create any kind of specific schedule or is, is it more like, you have some chunks of time off and then you just go hard for a while and everyone understands that that's yeah. how it's going to be. Yeah. My, I mean, my, my wife works more of a corporate job, so she's actually gone. She's actually out of town this entire week. And so it's just, you know, I'm on, you know, at that time. Yeah. And my, I work from home. I, I mix and master from home and we do some overdubs occasionally. When I track, I do it at, in outside studios, which actually has been reduced, I would say. So most of my time is here at home, mixing, mastering, doing the podcast. And then I do some, some software testing for uh, universal audio, actually, uh, part part time. So I'm actually six minutes away from the school. Uh, they both go to the same grade school. I can, you know, if there's somebody gets sick, I can be there. So I guess just not on purpose, but somehow I've managed to work in an environment that's mostly me all the time. Yeah, yeah. Me and the dog who was barking earlier. And um, so it's not, it, it still is challenging. And it's and it's challenging when they're younger. But as they get older and there's more independence that they want to flex, that that becomes nice. And you don't have a, a band in from out of town who's like, we're, we're only here to to make this record, man, what are you doing going home for dinner or whatever? It might be. <laughs> no. And I'd tell you, who's a great person to, uh, listen to on my podcast is David Barbie. Uh, I was going to say David Barbie, it, it, yeah. like his interview is really great for that. He talks about it extensively and he seems to, uh, have it dialed in. I know he, he opened my eyes early on. He was the first person I talked to that was like, man, I, I I've just got it. I've got a program that, that I just tell people in advance, like, here's the deal. You know, I'll give you everything I got within this window and I take a break at this time and then I'm back at this time. I'll tell you Um, another person who really opened my eyes, not, um, he's been on the podcast and we didn't talk about this as, as much, but in just like a, a one-on-one conversation on the phone, Michael Rosen, 
who lives here in the Bay Area. He's worked with like Tesla, Papa Roach, you know, heavy bands. Michael has, he has grown kids and he, I, I, I'm paraphrasing, but he made a comment to me a couple of years ago where he, we were talking about kids and he just said from his experience, he said, you know, make it a point to, uh, and I'm not going to get this exactly right, but essentially he was saying, be there when the, when dinner's being made, you know, and be around to socialize and be at the dinner table and be a part of the family. Don't be the guy coming in all the time late when they're in bed where you don't get a chance to really converse with them. Right. And that, that sunk into me deep when he told me that. So, you know, man, I, I, I better not listen to that one. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm close. I'm not there when dinner's being made usually because it's, I just got to milk every last minute if I want to, you know, give it all, give my all to the studio, but be a dad who's, who's present and seen and, and, participating. I don't think there's a, I don't but, think there's a formula. I think you, everybody knows what the best formula is for them and their family or their, their, you know, their situation yeah. better than anybody. So whatever you do, I'm, you know, exactly. And then when you're, you know, when, when you're home or when you have uh, some downtime, just be there, be present, you know, that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm learning, you know? Yeah. Um, be present. Yeah. I be, would agree. Better than being home all the time, but being checked out or not engaged. And, you know, that, that translates like same goes for the studio. Just like I said, you know, nine hours where you're really engaged and you're fully focused completely on it. I mean, I also feel like much beyond that, most days your, your focus is going to start waning a bit anyway. And I mean, not to say, I, I know as well as anyone that, you know, that, that 12th hour magic thing that happened late at night, you know, um, <laughs> that, that, that can be real. It also can be not real and you end up redoing it later. But my parting thought on the whole, uh, work-life balance thing and family is, is, you know, you can dial in your schedule with family, with the kids and you can get it like down to a fine science of how you do it. But there's those mornings where you've got a band coming in, you've got all everything in place and, and one of your kids wakes up and says, dad, my stomach hurts. And, or, or you yep. see that they're coughing and sneezing and you're like, oh shit, they can't yeah. go to school today. And everything <laughs> around you starts to fall apart right then and there. And you start rationalizing like, well, let me see. Uh, you're only a hundred and not 101 or 105. So I think you could, yeah. and you start trying to, you know, <laughs> figure it out like that. But in your heart, you're, you're like, actually not sick today because there's a band here from Sweden. So you're fine. <laughs> See you at five. Well, I know you just threw up, but that's the end of it. Just go to school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I've there. there's lessons every day. You just got to be flexible. And I, I try to, you know, every once in a while I, I can spot that that somebody I'm going to work with maybe might not have have the, the patience to understand that there are a few variables with you know, when the family's in, in play, um, you know, I'm, I, I, I let them know what, what to expect and, and I'm, I'm good for it. And I, I'll usually end up doing a little bit more than planned, but, um, you know, I just have to, you know, my family wants to know what to expect and the, the, the artists want to know what to expect. And once people know that usually everyone's fine. Let's transition a little bit. I want to talk about not so fun things to talk about. Let's talk about money and business and managing your gear list versus your income and trying not to overextend oneself and go into debt. It's not always possible because sometimes the gear list wins. You have any thoughts on that? Oh yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I I wrestle with it like anybody does, but yeah, and I've had a tendency to spend anything I've made, you know, on gear. It's so easy to, to rationalize, like, well. I made this at the studio and so it should come back into the studio and then that will help future projects, which will help, you know, keep me working. And there's, there are a million ways to rationalize things. I've reached a point where I know in my heart that there's not really anything I need where I can, I could say, that's the reason why this record's not going to be great or something. You know, it's just not the case anymore. It's just at this point, it's, it, it's just new tools to inspire me to have, you know, to have some 
more fun and try some new things and and hear hear things anew. Yeah, it's tricky. And then when when you have kids, you can feel selfish on a whole new level if you if you're buying like at the peak at the max of of what you're making or beyond. Uh, it just takes on a new weight. So luckily for me, I you know I, I had bought the majority of stuff by the time the kids started coming around. But I, believe me, I find new stuff all the time that I want. So I, at this point, I I kind of have a rule with myself. If there's something I really want to get, then I'm going to find something to sell. And um, turns out I usually pay a lot more for the new thing than I get for the old thing. But <laughs> at least at least something's going. I think that's a good so, policy. Yeah. yeah. If you want something new, sell something old. Yeah. Makes, makes me feel a little better about it. And also my space, you know, I have 1,600 square feet here. It's not enormous. And, you know, you start to run out of room a little bit. And I don't I don't like being in a super crammed space either. So um, so there's that added incentive. I'd probably have a few more drum kits if I had more room, but I don't need more drums. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have a general approach or a philosophy or relationship, we'll say, with money and how you handle it or don't handle it? I So I have a manager. Uh, his name is Paul Dalen, and we've worked together for... I, I should know, but I, I'll guess about 13 years. And he he handles most of the money discussions with the artists or the, the artist management, which is a relief to me because I've just I just bristle at at the thought of, of those conversations with, with an artist. I mean, these days when a project when so often an artist is coming from out of town and there's, you know, they might be here for a few weeks sometimes less, sometimes more. There are just a lot of, a lot more complications and variables to, to, to discuss, you know, um, maybe we agree on a day rate, but you know, they, the budget is only X amount. And if it goes beyond that, what happens? Cause I'm not going to just say, well, then here's your record three quarters done. I'm out, you know, like I'm, I mean, I'm in this cause I want to be part of great records. Like that's, that's my motivation every day. I don't wake up and be like, let's go make the money. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I wake up and I'm like, man, let's make a better record than I've ever made before and, and learn something new and bring out the best in these people and, and, you know, let them bring out the best in me. So my manager has, has afforded me to not have to think too much about um, the, the negotiating side of that. He doesn't like manage it for me. I mean, once, you know, I mean, I, he gets a commission and, 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 my money comes in. That's that's all up to me. And as far as as my philosophy on that, I mean, I kind of already touched on it with and and the gear discussion that I, you know, I've had a tendency to to spend most of it and not tuck much of it away. But I'm I'm pulling back a little bit on that because because I need to. And and also, you know, just starting to get a a new glimpse on my mortality. And and you know, I mean, I hope I've got a long run ahead of me, but yeah, I can't do this forever. And, um, I don't know what, you know, when I'm 65, is anybody going to really want me to do it for them? I hope so, but that's no funny. Guarantees. Funny you bring that up because I'm feeling, you know, I'm 47 and I'm feeling the same mortality, the same pressure of, you know, all these, I see all these retirement calculators all the time and it's just, it's plaguing me. And I'm just thinking ahead going, okay, well, you know, Al Schmidt's kind of up there in age and he's still rocking, but I'm no Al Schmidt. And he comes from a generation that I don't think, uh, I don't think it's an apples to apples comparison anymore. I think our generation is, is different. And it's, I don't think that our generation gets the same budgets that his generation did. Right. And I, you know, I, I worry about it. So I'm always thinking like, what am I going to do? How's it, yeah. how's this going to work? And so, you know, retirement is, is recently, I keep mentioning it on the, on the latest round of podcasts. And I'm sure some, some of the younger people are like, what's up with the old guys in retirement? But really, <laughs> if I could redo part of my life, the, that part, I would go back to being 20 and I would start saving like crazy. I want to agree with you, but then I know, I mean, when you're 20, that's just, it's just impossible to think that way because you're the whole, your whole life's in front of you. And like, it's just, are you kidding? I don't need to worry about that. Everything's going to be fine, man. I got it all figured out or, you know, yeah. whichever stage of your twenties you're in, but 
It was the last thing on my mind. Not to mention, you know, I just was making next to nothing. So yeah, like, well, I can't think about saving. I got to figure out how to get my rent. Oh, and, and buy that big muff pedal too this month. <laughs> Somehow I have to get enough money for both. <laughs> you know, for better or worse, I, I just, I'm so busy working and, and, and raising the kids. I, I don't have that much time to, to think about the realities of, of what's, you know, what happens for a, a studio fellow like myself or, or you, you know, in 20 or 30 years. But um, I just just want to be able to do it, do it every day, you know, and, and until I, I don't. I, I suppose I could see being 70 years old and wanting to still do it, but wanting to do it um, even more on my own terms. You know what I mean? Maybe, you know, do a record and have a few weeks off or something perhaps mm-hmm. you know i mean my dad my dad was a songwriter for for a living and you could say that he's sort of retired now but he still writes songs but now he just writes songs when he feels inspired to write songs instead of goes to work every day because he needs to needs to keep doing it you know there's a certain i guess if i've got kind of a high overhead because i have this studio and my i have a lot of cool old gear which breaks daily and you know i have a mortgage and i have kids and all that stuff when i'm 70 I think my overhead will be a, a little bit lower. Last topic before we wrap up, health. Eating well, sleeping well, mm-hmm. not really on the agenda for um, recording professionals. It's true. It's a big one for me these days because, well, I've had back surgery, which certainly was the result of just sitting <laughs> hunched over a console for, you know, 12-hour days for years and years and years and years. And you know, one of the things I learned from that is, is just get up often, even if you just get up for 30 seconds, but just do it often. Um, that actually makes an enormous difference versus sitting without getting up for two or three hours. Um, so that, you know, for me, I, I do try to try to minimize the, the marathon days as much as possible. And part of that is just, you know, balancing my my life, you know, with my relationship and my, my family. And, and that all ties into emotional health, well-being, and then, and makes me, you know, if I'm tending to my life outside of the studio, then I'm more present and focused at the studio. I've definitely, I have to eat well, I've learned because I, I also don't get, you know, I walk to the studio every day. It's about three and a quarter miles. That's my only real guaranteed exercise, but it's not enough to like get me ahead of the, of, you know, on the, physical health game, I, I have to still eat well, or I really just feel it. I, I focus better when I eat well. I mean, this is all kind of new to me that I'm, that I really prioritize those things. Cause I've always known it, but I've always still been like, yeah, but anyway, go get, get me that honking burrito. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that still happens some, but because I, I usually eat out. I mean, we have food, we order out at the studio for lunch every day. Um, when I would just defer to the bands, which I did forever and ever, you know, it, it was it was not particularly healthy food. And um, my age just started catching up with me and I had to just prioritize. So I eat a lot of salads. <laughs> yeah, I think it's ba- it goes back to that mortality feeling that we get about, you know, we th- th- talked about retirement, but also the health thing can. Yeah. You start to go, well, I'm getting a little round in the belly. I should, yep. I should quit drinking so much beer or I should quit eating so much junk. It's, you know, at least in my experience, being a studio guy is just doesn't lend itself to being healthy on its own. It's like I said, it'll take every hour you'll give it. And, um, you know, you're just running on adrenaline and coffee and what, you know, what, whatever. If you don't put your own kind of you know, boundaries on it and start making, being proactive about choices, it, it will eventually catch up. And I'm envious, you know, I, thankfully I still get to work with a lot of young bands and, um, that seem to be able to do what, whatever they want <laughs> with their bodies and, and not, not feel it. But, um, I want to be, I really want to, you know, I, I, I just want to become better and better at what I do. And, and I think I've got to be more focused and that means making healthy decisions as much as possible. Yeah. And every once in a while, just, you know, 
then every once in a while I can make a bad decision and feel okay about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, uh, I think it's been a good decision to talk with you today. And I, I really appreciate the time uh, that you've taken to do this. I know you've been really busy. So uh, it's been a pleasure. Oh, thanks, man. It's been a pleasure talking to you and great to see you again. Likewise, man. And thanks for being patient while we tried to figure the scheduling out. I know it. it we had to punt it a few times. Ah, we made but, it work. You know, we did it when the time was right. Yeah. Thanks again, <laughs> thanks, Tucker. Thanks, Matt. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Tucker Martine here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Do want to say before we go that if you do have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com. So until then, let's thank everybody. I want to say thanks to Cliff Truesdell, Chuck Smith, Cole Williams, and I want to thank our sponsors, Gearslets.com, Focal Monitors, Audio Technica, Lawton Audio, and Universal Audio. And I want to say thanks to you. I appreciate the time you take to listen. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.